And thank you guys. You see this morning we're beginning a new series on uh, the book of James through its entirety and uh, we are calling this Ethics of Grace and I hope you see a reason why here in uh, just a bit. Whenever you come to the book of James, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on, on background information, but whenever you come to the book of James, uh, because we have seen James mentioned in other places in the New Testament, we sometimes are left asking the question, what James? are we, we talking about? Uh, in James, in Mark rather, in Mark's gospel chapter 3 in verse 17, there is uh, the mention of the name James. He is one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the very first apostles. He was killed, put to death by Herod Agrippa in AD 44. In the very next verse in Mark chapter 3 in verse 18, there is James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, it's, and he's another one of the original apostles. But when you come to the book of James, there is an abundance of evidence to give credence to the claim that it is, in fact, the brother of our Lord, the brother of Jesus. And there's a, a multitude of reasons why that is the conviction of most uh, scholars today. That uh, one, one of the things that is most telling, I will just uh, share with you, is there is a parallel between the writings. If you were to go to Luke chapter 2 and you read the Magnificat of Mary. Uh, there is a parallel between those words, the Sermon on the Mount, and the writings of James. And you will see that parallel as we continue to go through these chapters of James. You will see that kinship to the Magnificat. You can go back and read that. It would actually be helpful. Go back and read that go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, and you will see those parallels uh, come into play in the book of James. They were a part of a community that were known as the Anawim, Mary and Peter and Jesus, uh, a group that would have been known as the pious poor, a uh, group of Jews who, regardless of circumstances, they were poor, they were poverty-stricken, they lived out of poverty, and yet they remained faithful in their commitment to God and their obedience to God. So they were the Anawim, the pious poor. And that emerges in, in the writings of, of James, the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Magnificat as, as well. One of the things that oftentimes happens whenever you come to the book of James, James is, is oftentimes ignored. People tend to read, if they're going to read the New Testament, they either read the Gospels or they read uh, the writings of Paul, the epistles of Paul, uh, or the epistles of Peter. James is very different. It is, it is not, uh, James is not written for posterity's sake. It's not written as a book that, uh, that necess necessitates uh, intellectual or philosophical <clears throat> meanderings or contemplation. Uh, James is very pastoral. It's very prophetic. It's very gritty. It's very in your face. James gets in your business real quick. And uh, that may well be the, be the reason that, that it's ignored by most. Even scholars, even theological scholars tend to ignore uh, the book of James. Uh, renowned scholar Rudolf Bultmann, uh, in his theology of the New Testament, he's fascinated by the Apostle Paul. Hardly makes any mention at all of, of James. Uh, one scholar, even recent scholar, referred to, to James as being the junk mail of the New Testament. I thought that was an interesting moniker to put on, on the book of, of James. But most want to read the writings of Paul and uh, read the writings of, of Peter, the other uh, traditional type of epistles, to, to the fact that, that James is oftentimes ignored. They'd rather think about Paul's grace instead of James' expectations. 
of how we are to live if we are, in fact, the people of God. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a mistake for us as believers and followers of Christ, if Scripture is to be the authoritative guide in all matters of faith and practice, in our lives it is a, a critical blunder and mistake to, 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 to focus on Paul's grace to the neglect of, of James' expectations. In fact, the reason I'm calling this an ethic, the ethics of, of grace it's only as you understand grace, it's only as you understand appropriately and rightly the grace of which Paul writes that you can rightly understand James. James is not without theology. James has an abundance of, of theology, an abundance of theological understanding. James would have the same uh, theological understanding as does the Apostle Paul. But what we see in the writings of James is if you correctly understand a salvation that is by grace through faith, then this is what it's going to look like in your life. And I think we fail to appreciate the stature of James in the early church. We, we tend to put Paul, Peter, the likes of Paul and Peter up on this, this pedestal in our reading of the New Testament of today. But, but when you go back to the early church, the first century church, James cast a shadow that, that reached far beyond Paul and Peter. In fact, Paul, even in the letter to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 9, would refer uh, to James as a pillar, and he was. And perhaps you can best see the influence of James and his priority role in the leadership of the church in the early New Testament church, the role that he played, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, you will see that it is James that has the last word. James, this Jewish messianic Christian, this, this leader of a mass messianic movement within, within, uh, among the Jewish people, James is the one that has the final word in Acts 15 that affirms once and for all that the gospel, this is a messianic Jew saying the gospel is for Gentiles. It is for all who believe in faith, by faith and trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The salvation of God, the gospel of God is for all who would believe. That comes from James. And so you have to, it's only by, by having a correct understanding of the Apostle Paul and everything that Paul says that you can really appreciate everything that James is saying and that James sets forth. And the expectation is, is that as a people of God, we are going to look different. That the way that we live our lives, by our choices, our decisions, our behaviors out in the world, we are offering to the world a life that looks different. That we live our lives within this ethical matrix of how faith is exercised. So see, for both Paul and James, and listen church, this, this, this is to our detriment. Oftentimes we want to define faith when we talk about having faith. Our tendency is to believe that means that if I'm a person of faith, that I give intellectual assent, I'm agreeing and saying yes, that I believe some facts about Scripture, about Jesus, I believe these things to be true. I believe certain things. That's how many people define faith. But for both Paul and James, faith is so much more. 
faith for these men, by definition, at least as we understand it in, in Scripture, Faith is a courageous living out of God's revelation revealed and made known in the person of Jesus Christ. That is faith in the eyes of Paul. That is faith in the eyes of James. It is a courageous living out of God's revelation made known in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's going to look different from the world. And so what James is going to do through the entirety of this book, he's going to raise up certain issues, very real life issues that we are even going to be confronted with today. And James is setting forth this ethical matrix because you're a people of God and you're going to experience these trials and tribulations that, that really everyone is going to, to experience in life. You're not exempt from the trials and the hardships of life. But in the experiencing of life, here's you an ethical matrix for how you respond in a way that is appropriate to your faith. Faith being the courageous living out being a courageous presence of the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing that James is going to deal with, the first topic is trials and tribulations. And he's going to get into it very quickly. He's going to set forth this, this matrix for how you and I as followers of Christ, the people of faith, what is our ethical matrix to give an appropriate response when I endure hardships? when the unexpected comes my way. The first thing that James would offer, notice in this building of a matrix, this ethical matrix, the very first thing taken from verse one, verse one is, that, is that you and I as followers of Christ, we have an identity to be embraced. If I'm going to build this ethical matrix that enables me to respond appropriately in a way that reflects my faith, the first thing I have to do is I have to have embraced my identity, who I am in Christ Jesus. Now, James says it this way, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Twelve tribes would not have been an unusual title that to his recipients, to his audience, Jews oftentimes refer to themselves in this very way. They might say something like in describing themselves, their ethnicity, they, they would say of themselves, we're a, we're a twelve tribe kind of people. So it's a, it's a customary address. When he's addressing the 12 tribes of, of uh, the dispersion uh, that is used here who are dispersed abroad, in that ancient day, they would have understood that, that, the land of, uh, that, that there was the land of Israel and anything outside, any land outside the land of Israel, if you lived beyond Israel, you were a dispersed people. But make no mistake about it. When we begin to unravel the book of James, what James is vying for, he clearly sees the work of Jesus as being the restoration or the reconstitution of you, if you will, the restoring of Israel through a messianic community. James clearly sees the mission of Jesus, the life and the ministry of Jesus as Messiah, he sees this as the restoration of Israel through a messianic community, a believing 
people. But let's go back to that first clause for a moment because we are given great insight to James and his self-perception. James, a bondservant of God. Now what's interesting in the reading of James, or you go read the book of Jude, is also the brother of Jesus, is that neither one of them used their kinship with Jesus as a means of getting or leveraging for power. Neither one of them. Would have been easy, wouldn't it? I mean, would it be kind of human nature to say, hey, listen, if, if, if you're going to give me credibility, surely you know I'm the brother of Jesus. James isn't writing from that perspective. James says, I'm writing to you, fellow believers, by fellow believing Jews. I'm writing to you, and I, and I want you to see my spirit. I'm writing to you because we know he's going to get in. He, he's going to be saying some very hard, gritty gritty thing. But I want you to know that I'm writing to you as a servant, as a servant of God. I'm writing, that's my spirit. I'm writing you and I'm instructing you, understanding that I'm, I'm a bondservant of God. I write and I instruct you as one that is seeking to please God, not gain the favor of men. And I assure you that when you receive the, if, when they receive the book of James and you, and you read through the grittiness and the expectations of, of James, you're not going to come away from it going, man, I really like that guy. Man, that guy just, he made me feel good about me. James isn't that kind of letter. And James knows the tone of his writing, the substance of his writing, but I want you to appreciate where it's coming from. Like you, I'm just, I'm just a bondservant of God. I write not as one who has arrived. I'm one that's a co-struggler with you. But then notice also, not just as a bondservant of God, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a theological statement here. He's not offering something out there for theological reflection. What James is offering is a confession a confession that forms his beliefs, a confession that informs how he lives, his behavior. Listen, I'm confessing Jesus as Lord. It's not my, he's not talking about being his brother. Jesus is my Lord. And out of this confession of my faith, out of recognizing who Jesus is, this fashions everything I believe and how I behave in every facet of my life. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so he has this sense of identity that we are the people of God. We have to embrace collectively our people. If we are to leave here and to go out as a missional presence into our world, listen, we got to be locked and loaded on knowing who we are. That we are a unique and distinctive people. Now, throughout the entirety of Scripture, we're identified by two things. Our worship as the people of God through Old Testament, New Testament, we are known by our worship, that we are a people who come together, that gather together as a unique, distinctive people who worship, and out of that worship, we go out and we live ethically. So we were known through in Scripture by worship. We are a worshiping people, and that worship impacts behavior. 
And what you're going to see in James is that genuine worship, and this really goes back all the way to the prophets, especially Isaiah 58, worship that is genuine, the worship of God that, that emerges from the heart, a worship that is pleasing to God. This is a worship that in behavior, it is going to push you out towards the marginalized of society. Genuine worship is so transformational to the human heart, it is going to push you out towards the marginalized and the disenfranchised of society. And if it doesn't, James is going to call it into question. That's, that's why this is a very, a very challenging book. But he wants us to grasp the gravitas, the weight of who we are, this unique and distinctive identity that is ours, of what has been entrusted to us to bear witness to the world of an alternative way of living life and approaching life. And it begins with an identity that has to be embraced. A second thing James offered in building this, this ethical matrix, he gives to us an attitude to be considered. He says in verse two, consider it. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. <laughs> James made a quick segue, didn't he? I mean, he doesn't waste any time. He, he launches quickly into the substance of, of the letter, and that's trials and tribulations. In fact, you're going to see in James that that is really the central theme of the letter. We're, when we get to chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, every one of those have, have verses that deal with the trials of life. And so, so James doesn't want us to be surprised by that. Being a person of faith doesn't mean that you're immune from the, the challenges that everyone faces in life. You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We are not exempt from the trials and the tribulations that everybody in life is going to face. But for James, he sees this as the platform and the opportunity to display and to bear witness to the power of the resurrected Christ, the power of a living Savior to offer to the world a living example, an alternative to how life can be approached and how even our hardships can be addressed. Did you notice that he wove in a word of kinship? Consider it all joy, my brothers and my sisters. That these burdens, these hardships, these trials, these are something that, is a, that, that we are going to share together in, in community. That, that all of us are going to face adversity and we are at our best when we come together with our brokenness. I've always thought it one of the sad indictments in the Western church that whenever hardships come, whenever families or individuals experience devastating hardship, they think they have to leave the church or go find another church. Oh, I've held, I've held forth. We've worked hard on building this persona, this, this facade that, that we're a people and we're a family. We've got our act together. 
Oh, holding forth this image that other people want and uh, you know, that, 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 that they want for themselves. Now it's broken. Now the veil has come down. They've seen our infirmities, our brokenness, that we struggle with the same thing as everyone else. So we better leave. We better go somewhere where we can, where, where we can hold up the facade and fool a whole nother crowd that we've got our act together. What a tragedy. When, in fact, it is that very brokenness that defines us as a broken people. We, we are at our best. Listen, church, we are at our best when we come together as wounded healers. When out of our brokenness we have seen the faithfulness of God, we have experienced the faithfulness of God, whenever tragedy and disease comes, it is inspirational to look across and to know what someone is, has dealt with, what they, what they have battled through, and we see how their faith has defined them. We all find great encouragement in that. James saying we're brothers, we're sisters. We're family together in these trials that are, in fact, going to come our way. But when they do, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider it all joy. I don't want you to be surprised by the trials of life. In fact, Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. No, these things are going to happen. It's the harsh reality of life. But when they do, here's how I want you to respond. I want you to consider it all joy. Whatever your condition might be, your circumstances, I want you to consider it as all joy. That is, and this requires eyes of faith, I want you to consider looking, not focusing on that trial, but I want you to consider looking through that trial to the potential and the possibilities of what might be. To consider maybe by faith what God is doing in this and, and through this. Listen, I don't want, if this is truly going to be, if my hardship is truly going to be the platform to bear witness to a living hope for the world to see, then I can't bemoan my hardship. I can't bemoan my trials. That's what the world does. I can't be like everybody else on social media, just, uh, just, uh, just this neurotic, this, this unceasing neurotic anxiety about life. That's the world. No, I've, I've got to have eyes of faith. I've got to consider it differently. It's not unlike the Apostle Paul in Acts in Act 26 who, who considered his imprisonment, who considered his trial before, before King Agrippa, he considered it as an opportunity to, to defend the gospel. He saw through his trial to the possibilities of what might be defending the faith of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. 
Or as he urged believers in the Philippians letter in chapter 2 and verse 3, as he urged believers to, to consider others as more important than oneself. Or as Christ in Philippians 2, 6, who did not consider equality as something to be grasped. It's how he considered it. How he viewed things through, through eyes of faith. And so to consider my conditions, to consider my, my circumstances with all joy is to see through those things to the possibilities of what might be. And then finally, in the building of this matrix, he gives us an insight. James gives to us an insight to be realized, and that will be realized. Knowing that's your insight, knowing, cognitive understanding, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, remember the faith that is being held forth here is a faith that considers things, that considers it with joy. That's an act of faith. Trials aren't fun. Things I don't expect to happen when they happen, it's not really fun. But I know that if I can, that if I have the discipline by the power of the Spirit to consider it with joy, it's going to build up endurance in my life. That, that's a test. That's what's being tested. Every moment of adversity, every unexpected thing that happens to you, oh, you, you can view that as a test. It doesn't make it any more fun to go through. But I can have this awareness that God is doing something through this. I can think through this to the other side. To know that there is something formative that is being accomplished in me if I consider it with joy. Now, if I just bemoan it and act like everybody else, well, I didn't endure it. I failed that test. And every life circumstance is going to continue to be a test until this faith is being formed in us that can respond appropriately, that can, that can consider all things with joy. Because we have a faith that sees through it to the possibilities of what God is doing. Now, to fail that test over and over, that doesn't mean God throws you away. When I worked as a welder for an engineering firm, I worked in a pipe shop and welded on pipes and, and vessels that, that became refineries down in the Gulf Coast region, really over the entire United States. But you know, every weld that I, I made, it was put to hydrostatic test and x-ray. It's filled with water, put under pressure to see, to see if that weld leaked. It was then x-rayed to see if there were any bubbles in that weld. If it leaked or if there were bubbles, it, we, we didn't throw it away. It was brought back down the line to my station. My, uh, my welder's helper, he would, he would take the grinder and he would grind out that weld. Because it failed the test the first time, we, we ground out that weld and we re-welded it. 
And the flat welds are, are easy, just the circumference weld. Those, those are very easy, but sometimes they're in, they're in difficult places and, and they, would, they would fail the test again, but we didn't throw it out. Kept doing it again until we, we got it right. And that's the value of this testing. Every circumstance in, in life is a test to see if my faith responds as it is supposed to. Am I able to hit that switch as a person of faith where I can automatically consider that with all joy? See through it to the possibilities of, of the other side. Because James says, and he wants us to know this with certainty, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Produces endurance as you pass those tests. If you flunk the test, you're not building it. You're, you're just going to do the same thing again. Keep, you keep getting tested until you get there. And then when you get there and you get there again and you get there again, you're building up this, you're building up this endurance. You're, in, you're building up this toughness, this spiritual toughness, if you will. And that's what tough, to, when I talk about spiritual toughness, listen church, I'm not talking about the ability to physically overpower something. When I, when I speak of toughness spiritually, it means the ability to stay on course, it means the ability to stay on task, to remain obedient, to stay on the course, regardless of my circumstances. That's spiritual toughness. When Joey McGuire talks about the brand of Texas Tech football, the toughest, hardest working, most competitive team in the country, that's the very thing he's speaking to. It's not just being able to, to physically dominate an opponent, though that would be extremely nice. But it's talking about the fact sometimes, if not most times, you're going to meet someone who is, who is faster than you, stronger than you. But in those moments of adversity, are you tough enough to, to execute your assignment? Are you mentally tough enough to stay on task? It's what spiritual endurance is. It's not being knocked to and fro by every adverse circumstance that comes across in life. Because they're never going to stop. And with each one, when we respond rightly, we find ourselves building up this spiritual toughness and this endurance that bears testimony to the world of another way to respond to the adverse circumstances of life. And let endurance have its perfect result, verse 4, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It doesn't mean to be without flaw. When it uses the word perfect, when you see that translated in the New Testament, it doesn't mean to be without flaw. The word teleos that is used here, it means to reach your desired end, what you were created to be. I oftentimes use the illustration that if I were working on a, an engine or something, something mechanical, and I ask you to hand me a screwdriver, and I, I stick that screwdriver on the head of that screw, and I, if I responded, I, that's perfect. That doesn't mean that screwdriver is without flaw. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have a piece chipped out of it. It doesn't mean that there's not any grease on it. I mean, it's perfect for the task. It's doing what it's supposed to do. 
And when you and I endure the trials of life, it is these very things that get us to where we are supposed to be, where we can bear, where we can best bear testimony to another way of life being lived because of Christ who dwells in us. By practicing this ethic that James has set forth, we are bearing witness to the world to an alternative way of doing life. It is, church, the most ethical thing we can do. Let's pray together. Our Father, how grateful we are that you have called us to participate in a high calling and higher purpose. That even in our adversity and storms of life, you have given us a platform to bear testimony to the living God and the loving God who sent forth his son into the world. Father, what you have entrusted into us, entrusted to us, is no insignificant thing. The opportunity to bear witness of the gospel. The gospel of God that brings life in a world that gives only death. And so, Father, might we each one understand and embrace the magnitude of this gospel that we have received, that we might bear witness to it in our lives and to our world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, once a year, we have to do this, and I'm gonna wreck, Steve, you, you got a microphone there? Steve, come on up here, you can do it from the floor, I'll come down there with you. Steve comes making a recommendation from our finance ministry. <laughs>